please clap. Hello, and thank you to all of those who did clap. Welcome back to Blowing Off Steam with Wesley Kettle. Last time I released an episode, I got some constructive criticism on how I could make it better, and I'm going to put that into use. People thought I sounded kind of monotonous, and I agree with that. I did. So I am going to try to not sound as monotonous and put more of my opinion and what I think into these episodes, which I think will make it better. Also, I'm going to try and start releasing on a weekly schedule. This is my second episode in a couple of days. I'm going to start releasing once a week, probably. I'm going to shoot for Sundays. Anyway, this week we're going to talk about D.B. Cooper. He's a famous hijacker that's confused officials in the FBI alike. On November 24th, 1971, a man walked into the Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon by the name Dan Cooper. He bought a one-way ticket on flight number 305 headed to Seattle, Washington. Thus began a 50-year-long unsolved mystery. Now, where did D.B. come from? It was apparently a myth created by the press. And D. Cooper does not sound as good. It doesn't roll off the tongue as good as D.B. Cooper does. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, bourbon and soda, while the flight was waiting to take off. A short time after 3 o'clock p.m., he handed the stewardess a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase and wanted her to sit with him. He cut the chit-chat, man. He got straight to it. He was like, you know what? I have a bomb. Sit with me. We're going to work this out. The stunned stewardess did as she was told. I think stewardess is probably a pejorative, but that's what they called them in 1970, so that's the term I'm going to use. Opening a cheap attache case, Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red-colored sticks and demanded that she write down what he told her. Soon, she was walking a new note to the captain of the plane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. It's equivalent to about $1,260,000 in today's money. I mean, he used a cheap Apache case, too. He just got $200,000 in 1970s money, and he couldn't get a good briefcase to put his bomb in? Come on, man. While police and airline staff on the ground scrambled to assemble the money in chutes, the pilots flew in circle above Seattle. Passengers were told that a minor mechanical issue would force the plane to burn fuel, prolonging a flight that would normally take 30 minutes. I mean, that doesn't seem like a minor mechanical issue if you're burning fuel. Seems pretty major to me. After three and a half hours in the air, 727 finally landed. Also, if you're burning fuel, do you have... Okay. So they were refueling after a 30-minute flight. So they were they spent three and a half hours in the air while burning fuel. Th that doesn't add up. Having received his money in parachutes, Cooper dismissed all 36 passengers and two of the six crew members, which leaves four with him in the plane. The plane refueled and took off for Cooper's next requested destination, Mexico, via Reno and Yuma, to refuel. He also asked the crew to leave the exit ramp open, which... It's kind of suspicious. They, You'd think they'd put two and two together and realize, hey, this guy's probably going to jump. He has for four parachutes and to leave the exit ramp open. It's not that hard to figure out, guys. I mean, come on. He's like, he's like, hey, could you leave the exit ramp open? I, I don't know why he sounds like Will Arnett, but he does. He does. And they're like, yeah, sure, of course. I don't know why you'd want that. He's like, I just wanted a little breezy in here. But no, not going to jump. Nope, obviously not. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, a little after 8 o'clock, the hijacker did the incredible. He jumped out the back of the plane with a parachute and the ransom money. 
The pilots landed safely, but Cooper disappeared into the night, and his ultimate fate remains a mystery to this day. The FBI had learned of the crime in flight and immediately opened an extensive investigation that lasted many years. Okay, this is the worst hijacking name I've ever heard. Calling it Norjack for Northwest Hijacking. Also, that's a little bit of a vague term. Northwest Hijacking? Do you know how big the Northwest is? Do they call every hijacking in the Northwest Norjack? You'd think if they called them all that, they'd get a better name at least. They interviewed hundreds of people, tracked leads across the nation, and scoured the aircraft for evidence. By the five-year anniversary of the hijacking, they'd considered more than 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen from consideration. One person from their list, Richard Floyd McCoy, sounds like a country boy, is still a favorite suspect among many. On April 7, 1972, a man traveling under a fake name boarded a Newark, Los Angeles flight. Shortly after takeoff, he handed a note to one of the flight attendants. The note demanded $500,000 in four parachutes. Again with the four parachutes. Like, why do you need four to strap them to your arms and both your legs or something? It doesn't make sense. You're one guy jumping out of a plane. I, I make that sound easy, but I'm sure it's not. If these were not furnished, the man, a seasoned skydiver and helicopter pilot, would bomb the plane. The 727 landed and refueled, the hijacker exchanged passengers for cash and parachutes, and, en route to the next destination, he jumped from the rear stairs to freedom. Again, they didn't understand that the rear stairs having open in the parachutes didn't add up to him jumping out of the plane. And you'd think they'd be able to grab him as he's jumping out because, you know, he probably wouldn't bring his bomb with him when he's jumping out of a plane. The hijacking occurred less than five months after the D.B. Cooper incident, leaving many to suspect that the same culprit may have been responsible. The perpetrator of the April crime, Richard McCoy Jr., was convicted of air piracy and received a 45-year prison sentence. Air piracy is also known as skyjacking. You got hijacking, skyjacking, and carjacking, which I don't know what they call for boats. Boatjacking? Seajacking? I don't know. Anyway, on August 10th, 1974, however, he and some fellow inmates hijacked a garbage truck and escaped their Pennsylvania penitentiary. When the FBI finally tracked McCoy down in Virginia three months later, a shootout left him dead. Okay, that completely makes up for him getting caught for skyjacking. He hijacked a garbage truck, which basically, you can't shoot through those. They're solid metal. And, okay, the way I imagine him doing that is he hijacking a garbage truck and just driving through the gates of his prison. Epic way to escape. Anyway, he also didn't go back when they tracked him down. He was on the lam for three months, and he wouldn't go back after they caught him, so they had to kill him. Perhaps Cooper did not survive his jump from the plane. After all, the parachute he used couldn't be steered, his clothing and footwear were unsuitable for a rough landing, and he jumped into a wooded area at night. A dangerous proposition for a seasoned pro, which evidence suggests Cooper was not, because he jumped in clothes that would not be suitable for jumping. He had loafers and a trench coat on, which standard skydiving clothing, of course, I mean. This theory was given an added boost in 1980 when a young boy, 8 years old, found a rotting package full of $20 bills, $5,800 in all, that matched the ransom no money serial numbers. Okay, the FBI couldn't solve this or find a bag of rotting dollar bills, 
but an eight-year-old boy was? It's a little, it's a little sad, guys. The daring hijack and disappearance remain an intriguing mystery for law enforcement and theorists alike. It also remains the only unsolved commercial hijacking ever. All the other ones have been solved, or the people have been captured. The reason he was able to get away with this because there were not as strict regulations on aircraft flights until 9-11, when they had hijacked those planes and drove them into the World Trade Center, Pentagon, etc. So, he was able to just walk in there with a bomb and hijack a plane. They didn't have metal detectors, they didn't have bag searches, nothing. Also, flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he had remarked, looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at that time from Seattle Tacoma Airport. Okay, why would he hijack a plane and have them refuel in the Tacoma Seattle Airport if it's 20 minutes? from an Air Force base, and he's in a plane. You know what the Air Force does? They drive planes. That, okay, that wasn't smart. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes. Enraged, hardened criminals are take me to Cuba, political descendants, popularly associated with air piracy at the time. Okay, how many, how many hijackings are going on for there to be stereotypes about hijackers. That's that's unfortunate. Mucklow stated he wasn't nervous, she told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Mucklow the change, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during his stop in Seattle. So, I mean, he seems like a pretty nice guy, except for the fact that, you know, he hijacked a plane with a bomb and threatened to blow everyone up and stole $200,000 and jumped out of a plane and was never found. But you know, other than that, he seems like a great guy. Anyway, thank you for joining me on Blowing Off Steam with Wesley Kettle. Next week, we will have an episode on the Dietzlov Pass incident in Russia, which, mysterious circumstances, I would say yes. Thank you for joining us.